This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Make your view heard and get it included in the next show. Email your opinion to podcast at challengingopinions.com and we can discuss it in the next podcast. Thank you for downloading the new relaunched Challenging Opinions podcast. Every Monday, I'll be bringing you brand new content, but as part of the relaunch, I'm including previous interviews in this feed, like this one with Dr. Mark Thornton. He's an Austrian school economist at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. I hope you enjoy it. On the line, I have Mark Thornton, who is a PhD economist at the Mises Institute. Um, Mark can you tell me the origin of the name uh, Mises? The Mises Institute is named after an Austrian economist named Ludwig von Mises, uh, who was born in the 19th century, uh, was a leading free market economist in Vienna. Uh, and when the Nazis invaded, he during World War II, he moved to the United States uh, and produced uh, many great works on free market economics. Um, and is uh, known throughout, basically, the economic profession, um, representing the new Austrian school. And the new Austrian school, that refers to a specific type of economics. Would it be fair to say that it is maybe one of the more extreme free market uh, type of economics? Yes, that's uh, fair to characterize. The old Austrian school just refers to the the economists of Austria, prior to World War II, and Mises bringing uh, Austrian economics to the United States, along with F.A. Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize. Um, and it is uh, proper to characterize it as an extreme form of uh, free market economics, although there's a lot of uh, you know subtle division within the Austrian school. Uh, for example, Mises himself would be characterized as a typical limited government Libertarian Murray Rothbard would be considered uh, a radical anarcho-capitalist, and F.A. Hayek uh, would be less of a severe libertarian than Ludwig von Mises. So there's a lot of differentiation within the school itself. Uh, Those people, particularly Mises, would have been educated uh, perhaps in the 1910s and 1920s before the real uh, level of globalization that we see today uh, occurred, isn't it a fair criticism of that school of economics that uh, governments at the time were becoming 
overarchingly powerful. And of course, we saw the rise of Stalinism and the rise of uh, Nazism, as you say, during their lifetime. But they didn't, in their formative years, see the sort of corporations that have a GDP that are greater than many of the countries on the planet. Isn't it fair to say that some Mises economists have a blind spot when it comes to the excessive power of corporations? Well, I think that you're correct in the sense that Austrian economists do tend to uh, concentrate their efforts on exposing the problems of big government and all the problems that that causes in the economy. And Mises himself, of course, wrote the great critique of socialism, where he was attacking both Nazism, uh, Stalinism, uh, Italian fascism, and so forth. And Austrians have tended to concentrate on that side of the issue. But we're also very well aware, particularly today, I think many um, Austrian economists and Austrian professors are well aware of the problems of corporatism, and uh, more so today than ever, because corporatism, well, here in the United States, uh, we live under a corporatocracy where the large corporations essentially dictate through the political system the laws, the regulations, the rules, the tax code, and so forth. And so the big corporations uh, have a very favored status, uh, both here and in other countries as well. Uh, Generally, the bigger the economy, the bigger the problem. And uh, the problem is, uh, of course, to an extreme extent uh, here in the United States. And so that's uh, an area where Austrian economists are increasingly turning their attention. What what specific uh, remedies would Austrian economists, and I should say we're, we're saying here Austrian economists, you're not Austrian, you're not from Austria as I understand it. Austrian economists means people who follow a particular school of economics the founders of it happened to mostly come from Austria, but that doesn't mean that the, the people who um, follow that particular school of economics today are from Austria. Um, but what are the solutions that uh, Austrian economists like yourself propose to uh, the excessive power of corporations? Well, the biggest issue, the most global aspect of it is just the size and power of government. The more uh, power government has, the more rules and regulations that are on the books, uh, the more bureaucracies that there are, the better able the larger corporations are able to influence what those bureaucracies do, what rules they write, what regulations they write. Uh, and so the global solution is to reduce the scope and size of government. Um, bureaucracies uh, essentially make policies and the democracy itself makes policies that are in line with the interest of the largest corporation uh, and they get that influence by donating money to politicians. So so do I understand you correctly that you're saying that if the government has too much power, corporations can hijack that power and use it to their own ends and the solution to that is to reduce the amount of power that the government has? That's correct. For example, Dodd-Frank, the financial regulations, uh, those course, hurt, impose costs on all financial firms, but the largest firms are better able to deal with those, the costs of those rules and regulations. The smaller companies, the mom and pop operations, have a very difficult time. But but hang, hang on a second, hang on a second. In the United States, the rule of law is very effective, and that's true across, you know, most of the very developed Western world. But that's only a minority of the planet. If you go to somewhere like uh, Nigeria or perhaps some of the countries in Central America, 
the rule of law is very weak. The rule of uh, the government is very poor. Most people within uh, their own uh, village or whatever can go about their business within their village. But their, you know, the prominent experience of interference in their lives, say, for example, if you live in Nigeria, would be Shell Oil, who uh, essentially uh, are the government in many of the oil producing areas in Nigeria. Don't ordinary citizens need a strong uh, government in order to balance the power of corporations? No, I don't think I don't think that's correct. I think that um, the larger, the more powerful the government, the more likely it is that large corporations are going to be able to hijack that government, um, both locally as well as in international affairs. And so, the U.S. government is. Uh, prominently uh, plays a positive role for the large corporations uh, in these foreign countries and in the Middle East and uh, getting uh, large subsidized projects uh, built um, in these third world countries, uh, placing the debt on the backs of those local citizens uh, who get very little benefit out of it. So uh, the U.S. is notoriously uh, involved in Africa uh, to the benefit the large American corporations to the detriment of the local population. And do you think that that local population would be able to resist the demands of large corporations uh, better if there was even less effective government in Africa? The local governments in Africa typically tend not to be uh, ineffective. They tend to be dictatorships in many cases. Sure, sure, but on the ground, uh, they t- they tend to have fairly little power. They don't; they're not able to organise themselves very well. They don't. Uh, they obviously they have a monopoly of government power, but government really their writ doesn't run very often in large parts of the third world. Yes, that's correct. I mean, that's a big problem. Um, you know, the as you say, that under the rule of law in, in a society where individuals respect. Uh, people's property rights, um, you know, that's that's what Austrian economists say is the foundation of our prosperity is a people who believe and respect private property, a people who have uh, sound money, uh, people who uphold and believe in the rule of law. And in many of those countries, they don't have those traditions of private property, rule of law, respect for law and order, and, and things of that nature. Um, and, of course, some of that is due to the tribal uh, background. Some of that is due to the problems of colonialism. And some of it's due to the problem of corporatism in the modern context. And maybe looking at uh, how things run in the United States and in the, the, uh, the Western world, Typically, the governments are more powerful. They can run the state the way they want it. Do you think that, say, for example, if a government in the United States introduces environmental legislation, that that's a, an unwarranted burden on corporations? Well, environmental legislation uh, replaces uh, the rule of law. Uh, and, you know, we had the rule of law with respect to environmental type issues for a very long time. And uh, that was subsequently replaced by environmental regulations, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and so on and so forth. How how would you distinguish the between the two exactly? Well, under the rule of law, if there's 
an environmental harm on one person, then whoever causes that environmental harm um, can be sued, brought to court, uh, and so so on. So, so to to put to give it a, to give it a real world uh, example, if I want to build a factory and I want to pour uh, the poisonous outflow from that factory into the local river, in one example, perhaps with environmental legislation, the government can forbid me from pouring the poison from the factory into the river, or they can uh, introduce penalties if I do so. In the uh, Austrian economic model, the idea would be that the uh, the citizens of the local town can sue me for poisoning the river. Is that understanding it correctly? That's basically it, yes. The people who are harmed, either individually or, or in global, uh, net negative effect uh, from that pollution can sue for damages um, and uh, or just be paid in, in, in order to sustain those damages. They can accept it for a certain amount of money. Right. Well, say, for example, then one of the very first pieces of environmental legislation uh, was a law passed in London in the United Kingdom, uh, which forbade the burning of coal in uh, uh, within the city because they had what were called pea super smog. That's to say smog that was so thick it was compared with pea soup. Uh, millions of Londoners were burning coal in their fireplaces until that happened. Would you have to sue all of them? Well, that's a good that's a good question. There are problems of transactions cost um, in environmental issues, um, but basically, you would have uh, you know individuals suing other individuals uh, to stop polluting or to compensate for the pollution itself. Does, London, does... London is a good is it's a good uh, case study because it was really one of the first major metropolitan areas where you had um, a lot of people coming together and uh, where you started to see these environmental type problems. Uh, and I, as I understand it, London is was at the time was more of like a corporation so that they actually could pass global laws for the original uh, city within the original city limits. Sure, this was, but this was a UK-wide uh, piece of legislation that came from the House of Commons in England. And the, the core of the problem was that every household, all of the millions of households in London were burning coal in their fireplaces to keep warm. The government said, that's making everybody sick. There are measurable death rates every time the weather gets cold that come from uh, the smoke from the coal. Um, and you essentially had a problem of the tragedy of the commons, whereby any one person improving their behaviour, that improvement would be lost in a sea of, of um, other people who weren't uh, taking part in that. And they imposed one rule to say, OK, no more burning of coal in, uh, in fireplaces. That was a huge benefit for the health of Londoners. Well, if they didn't freeze to death, I suppose. But uh, we, we still no, have those problems. No, no, no. Uh, there, were, there were other the heating United systems States. provided. The, um, we still have that problem here. I know it's like they're, the EPA is trying to impose uh, the law against uh, burning wood in inner city limits in uh, the city of Anchorage, Alaska. Mm-hmm. That's basically their only uh, current source of heating. And uh, they're not really, I mean, it's obviously I've lived in towns where they, where they people burn wood to heat their homes. And it's not pleasant. 
Um, so, so my essential point is, isn't there a failure in the uh, Austrian type economics that where there's one big, perhaps deep pockets target, where there's one big polluter or one big person who is offending against uh, society, that it is then easy to say, okay, you stop or you get sued. But where that offence is distributed across uh, perhaps even millions of offenders uh, who are each uh, contributing a very small amount to the problem, it's just not pro- it's just not um, practical to sue them. Yes, under certain circumstances, it's not going to be practical when the benefits of burning the very cheap coal um, are compared to the distributed effects of of the coal smoke. Um, it's going to take some time uh, for the market to work something like that out. So Austrian economics is not something, and then actually we're very vicious of instant solutions uh, because they tend to be very costly and they tend to be very distortive and they hurt a lot of people in the interim. So we, we always prefer to uh, let the market work out these problems because it's done such a remarkable job in doing so. We had a tremendous uh, pollution problem in the city of Pittsburgh where a, a large percentage of our steel was produced through uh, coal-burning processes. And early in, early on, Pittsburgh was a very, very, very polluted city, uh, very much the same situation that existed in London. But those steel producers became more and more efficient uh, in producing the steel, and they reduced the amount of smoke that was emitted from their factories, so much so that the pollution problem was reduced 90% of what it previously was before the Clean Air Act uh, ever went into effect. And so the market process definitely has a way of working out these problems um, as it did in Pittsburgh, as it's currently doing in China, which is becoming more efficient and uh, and naturally uh, emitting uh, relatively less uh, toxic pollutants um, into the air. So it it's, it's, it doesn't give you that instant gratification, uh, but in the in the end, you get a a, a very you know a much more efficient. Uh, result and you get you get it in a efficient fashion where you're not imposing tremendous cost on people to go out and get new heating systems for example to get, to have the whole city of london go out and get new heating systems you can imagine that that must have been uh, incredibly expensive dr mark thornton a senior fellow at the mices institute thank you very much for talking to challenging opinions i enjoyed it william thank you very much make your view heard Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. I have links in the show notes for Mark Thornton and lots of the things we were talking about. Do you know someone who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd really be interested to hear your feedback. And if you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes and give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO. You can also follow Mark Thornton at Dr. Mark Thornton. And most importantly, subscribe to the show. You can use iTunes for that as well. Or if you are not an Apple person, if you use Android, you can find it on Google Play Music. I have a link for that on the website. And if you're old school, there's also an RSS feed on the website. You can find them all or get in touch with me right at www.changingopinions.com. 
On the next podcast, I'll have Ali Sina, and he'll be talking about why he left Islam. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.